uh, invite you to turn, as we have done more than once in times past, to that great missionary psalm, uh, which we sang a version of just a few moments ago, and which falls 67th in the collection. Turn with me now to Psalm 67. I want to read you the psalm in its entirety and then zero in especially on the first line of verse 4. So Psalm 67 is for the choir director with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song, and it reads as follows. God, be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. Father, help us to hear that well this Christmas season um, as we've just celebrated harvest, thanksgiving, that you bless us, not only so that we will fear you, but so that all the ends of the earth may fear you. So there's something we are to do with all the blessing that you've given us, spiritual and monetary. Help us to think that through and to be faithful in the days ahead. And help us as we think about your heart for the nations today to hear well what you have to say to your church and to be faithful with what we hear. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let the nations be glad, verse 4, and sing for joy. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. We live in an era of history in which we know better than any generation before us what is meant by the word nations there in verse 4. And not only because of all the missionary research that's been done, but also because we have greater access in 2015 to what is taking place out among the nations of the earth, to the stories, the places, the faces behind the word nations in many other ways than at any point in the history of the planet. For instance, terrorists strike in France and we're able to follow the news almost in real time. Refugees from Syria and elsewhere stream across Europe and we have striking pictures of their encampments and video interviews with some of them sharing their stories, all available to us at the touch of a screen. And practically any time we want, we can get the latest sound bites from Vladimir Putin or Angela Merkel or whatever head of state may be in the center of the news currently without reaching any further than the phones in our pockets. And I suppose it's the essence of our fallen human nature that we Americans, myself included, often view international news mostly in terms of its earthly ramifications and largely in terms of how it's going to affect us. How will unrest in the Middle East affect gasoline prices, and particularly my gasoline prices? 
And what ramifications do terrorist acts in France have on whom we allow across our borders? And how will China's rise as a world superpower impact us? So often about us. Now, I don't mean to suggest that those questions are unimportant, much less that they're simplistic or that policymakers shouldn't grapple with them. They must grapple with them, of course. But I do suggest to you that it should startle us, especially when we read a psalm like this one, to notice how prone many of us are to take world news and immediately spin it back to what it means for us, as though we here in our country were at the center of the universe. Now, I'm sure this isn't purely an American problem this tendency mainly to think temporarily and to bring everything back to our own personal and national interests. I imagine the news and the politics and the water cooler talk function much in the same way in Germany or Brazil or Egypt or Japan or wherever. And I'm sure pastors there have to alert their people to the same sorts of things. Temporal short-sightedness and ethnic and national nearsightedness and personal self-sightedness are problems of mankind's fall, not just problems of modern America. But it's clear this morning, both from our key text in verse 4 and from the psalm as a whole, that our God is not a nearsighted God. We may sometimes be provincial. We may sometimes have eyes that cannot see very much beyond our own personal interests and our own national borders. But God is not a God of Americans only. Nor is he a God of Americans especially. He's not a God merely of the Western Hemisphere or those places that are already, quote, Christianized. This psalm doesn't allow for such nearsightedness, does it? Let the nations be glad, it says. Let the peoples praise you, verses 3 and 6. And not just some of the peoples, but verse 3b, let all the peoples praise you. And again in verse 6b, let all the peoples praise you. God is not a God merely of one nation or people. He is passionate about the nations, plural, and the peoples, plural. Indeed, Coming as it does from the Old Testament, this psalm reminds us that God is not even a God of the Hebrews only. Now, it is of course true that he chose that nation for his special Old Testament possession and that he blessed them in times of old far more than any other nation on the earth. But this psalm in verse 7 reminds us that he blessed them not just for their own sakes. He blessed them not just as an end in itself, but he blessed them so that all the ends of the earth may fear him. God's heartbeat is that the nations be glad and sing for joy, not just any one particular nation. And I want to urge you to think like that when you see or read the international news. So that when you see the photos of refugees camped out on the streets of Prague, you begin to ask yourself, I wonder if anyone is reaching them with the gospel. Or for that matter, I wonder how the gospel is faring among the people of Prague itself. Do they have Bible-believing churches? Or so that when you hear of all those deaths in France, one of your first thoughts, maybe not the only one, but one of your first thoughts would be, Oh Lord, if the statistics in a book like Operation World are true, 99% of those people went into eternity separated from Christ. 
And so what can be done? What must be done, not only to protect ourselves from terror, God, but what must be done to get the gospel to these perishing Frenchmen? Or, if you're like me and you're interested in certain nations for their natural beauty or the historical sites, for their travel value, in other words, I need to learn to think not just what a visit to Norway would have to offer me, but what the gospel needs are among the Norwegians. How can I pray for the church there? Our God is a God who is passionate about the nations. He is not provincial, and we shouldn't be provincial either. Our cry should be that of the psalmist, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. And let's just talk about the nations for a few moments. Let me just give you three of them that have been in the news and then give you some statistics and information from Jason Mandrick's book, Operation World, which is an incredibly important resource. Let's think, first of all, about France. Paris will be lovely this Christmas, but the celebrations will be marred by the memory of those recent terrorist attacks. And yet, both as the nation mourns and as it celebrates and says, Joyeux Noël, The fact is that only about one in a hundred Frenchmen have the hope of the gospel in their hearts. France is one of the most secular nations on the earth. There was great revival among the French during the Protestant Reformation, but the Christians, the Huguenots as they were called, were partially exterminated and partially harried out of the land so that the psalms of God's praise have slowed only to a trickle in that land. And who will pray for the French? And who will go and plant churches in the various quarters of Paris and in the villages and towns throughout that land? And what about Syria, where there's so much death and despair and from which so many people are making mass exodus in search of safety and a better life? Well, in France, I told you, evangelical believers number one in 100. In Syria, one in 1,000. And so think about the vast mission field that is moving across the European continent just now. Who will pray for them? And who will go to them? I was put recently onto a website, ArabicBible.com, which is providing Arabic language Bibles to churches in Europe who are ministering the gospel to these refugees as they come through. And maybe some of you will consider pitching into that work, ArabicBible.com. One in a thousand Syrians know the Lord Jesus. And then let's think about Mexico, which we saw on the screen, and whose people are so often in our news and whose northern border is a constant source of debate in our land, both at the highest political levels and around the most basic office coffee pots. I'll admit I don't really know what the best political situation is concerning the people of Mexico crossing our borders. But what I do know is that far more important is that the gospel cross theirs. Do we think of that when we consider that border that runs across the southern boundary of our land? How is the gospel faring on the other side of that border? Do their pastors have adequate training? What is being done to reach the massive Catholic population, 87% of the national populace? What's being done to reach them with the good news that Christ really has done all that needed doing for our salvation and that they don't have to jump through all the hoops that they've been brought up hearing about? 
And what can I do to be a part of God's plan for a nation like Mexico? Those are just three examples of dozens that we could give that there is more, much more to God's plan for these nations than what we often think of when we see them in the news or when we read about them in a travel magazine. And I hope that the Christians there think similarly about us when the United States finds its way into their news because we need the gospel too. In other words, the idea is not that these countries need help from America. Far from it. The idea is that they all, and we among them, need Christ. And the idea of this psalm is that Christ wants them. He has his heart fixed on them. This is the heartbeat of the triune God. Here in Psalm 67, let the nations be glad. And if that's the heartbeat of God, then it should be our heartbeat as well. It should be our song as well. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. And having camped out for a while on the word nations, let's just also now hover for a little time on that word glad. Let the nations be glad. Note that well. The aim of God is not simply that the nations would throw away their idols or that the people would obey his laws or that the tribes would have their theology straight. All of that is true, of course, but that's not the emphasis of verse 4. The emphasis of verse 4 is that the nations would be glad. Indeed, so glad that they would sing for joy. This is the effect that the gospel has on people, is it not? People don't convert to Jesus merely out of a sense of duty and certainly not just out of a sense of fear. Now, there is reason to be afraid if we're outside of Christ. And there is a sense in which we ought to believe in Christ. Not just a sense, but it's just true. We ought to believe on Christ. But the gospel doesn't appeal only or even primarily to our duty or to our fears. The gospel, in the words of the angels of Bethlehem, is good news of great joy. Which, if I can just get this in again, will be for all the people. Good news of great joy for all the people. That is the gospel that we have to proclaim, is it not? It's a message that makes people positively happy. I read a little piece by a man called Douglas Wilson last year around this time where he was pointing out that it is entirely appropriate that we eat sweets and sing hearty songs and send gifts at this time of year because we have something to celebrate Not only in Bethlehem, but in the person and work of Jesus as a whole. Praise God that he has come. No wonder we celebrate. And so what we want to say to the nations is, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. There has been born for you a Savior. God himself looked down on our sin and he looked down on the misery that it had created and the death that is its wages and in order to bring us light and life and hope, he himself took on flesh and became one of us, Jesus, born in a stable. His first associates, shepherds, working third shift. And he grew up around the carpenter's shop in a little backwater town, and he was tempted in all things as we are, facing all of life's difficulties, reckoning with all of life's sins, but he never gave in to one of them. 
He was a light come down to shine in the midst of darkness. He is the image of the invisible God. Come down to bring us hope. Come down to grant us a song. Come down to set us free. This is good news of great joy. And how does he set us free? Well, the babe of Bethlehem grew up. Still, without ever falling into the sin that you and I breathe in like air. And one day, by the grand design of the Father who loved us and who was bent on rescuing us from his own righteous judgment against our sin, one day the Father sent this Jesus to a Roman cross outside Jerusalem to bear in his own body the penalty of our sins. He, the Father, made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And for three days he lay in the grave, our sins atoned for, and his body dead. But early on the Sunday morning, the tomb was empty and the Savior was risen because death could not hold him in its grip. And someday the message is that he will return to this earth to make all things new and to raise forever those who belong to him to dwell in a new earth where there will no longer be any death or any sin or any mourning or any pain and where we will finally see him face to face and know him fully. And in the meantime, he makes us part of a new kingdom. And grants us a wonderful new believing family, the church. And gives us simple, equitable, unburdensome laws to live by. And all of this is available. This Jesus and the salvation he brings are available in the words of the Apostle Paul to everyone who believes. Everyone who thirsts may come to the water, says Isaiah. Or in the words of Jesus himself, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. And what is more, the Bible teaches that if we've really come to know him, if we've really come to believe on him, it's because he's given us a new heart which was willing and able to turn to him and which will also relish his new way of life and which has the power to actually live it out. And so don't you want this Jesus? Don't you want to repent of the sins that sent him to the cross? Don't you want to trust in him and him alone to save you? Don't you want him to be your king? I'm asking you that question this morning, first of all. Do you want this Jesus? Don't you? If you've never truly laid hold of him before, don't you want to repent of your sins and cast yourself at the feet of one like this today? And this is the question that we ask the secular Frenchman or the Syrian refugee or the migrant worker from Mexico or the drug addict at City Gospel Mission or the white-collar neighbor who thinks he has it all. Don't you want this Jesus? And we ask it in that way, don't you want this Jesus, where the obvious answer is supposed to be yes, We ask it that way not because we're playing word games, but because if God has really opened a person's eyes to the gospel message that I just rehearsed, it really is good news of great joy. God didn't send His Son into the world to rule by the might of the sword and to bring people cowering into His kingdom. He came wooing them. He came with an offer too good to refuse. He came with glad tidings. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, says the psalmist. And I hope you can see why. I hope you are glad in the gospel. 
I hope you can see how good news it really is and that you're able to present it in a glad way to others. And I hope that you want the French and the Syrians and the Mexicans and the Russians and the North Koreans and the Moroccans and the Congolese and the Afghans and the native peoples of Greenland to be glad and sing with you. This is God's heartbeat. This is why he sent his son, that the nations would be glad and sing for joy. And let's just spend a few moments on that word sing as well in verse 4. Because what that word tells us is that the goal of missions is not simply that the nations and peoples be glad, but that they also express that they are glad. That they give voice to their gladness. That they positively praise the Lord. This is the theme of that book by John Piper, which we gave out a few moments ago. Let the nations be glad. Missions exist, he says, because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Which is as much to say that the goal of missions is not just that people be glad. That people be saved. But that having been saved, they would return that gladness to the one who gave it. Let the nations be glad and sing. The goal of missions, in other words, is not only that people would be saved and that people would go to heaven and that people wouldn't go to hell and that people would have new life here and now. All that is true, but even more so, the goal of missions is that those ransomed people would glorify God for His blessings, that they would worship, that they would sing. And so, for instance, it's true that our hearts ought to be tugged when we think of 99 of 100 Frenchmen going out into eternity without a Savior. But just as much, we ought to think of 99 voices that never truly sang the praises of God. 99 voices that were created to sing for joy in their Maker and Redeemer, but who never made the joyful sound, who never gave Him His glory that He deserves and who never will at least not with joy. And what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about this? Well, that's part of the burden of our text this morning here in verse 4, and really of the psalm in general. Notice, the psalmist says, Let the nations be glad. Let the peoples praise you. And that word let is a word of request. It's a word that indicates that while something should happen, it's not quite taking place yet. And the word let is therefore a request that that something that should happen would begin to happen. So if you say, let us pray, what you mean is we haven't yet begun to pray, but we should pray, so let's pray. And if you say, let's get something to eat, what you mean is that we haven't eaten yet. But don't you think it's about time we did? Let's eat. And that's the burden of this psalm. The nations ought to be glad. The nations ought to sing for joy. But as yet, the project is not complete. And so the psalmist is making a request to the Lord in this instance that the nations would indeed sing for joy. Oh, Lord, let the nations be glad. Make it happen, Lord. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Did you hear it? Not only those verses that I just read, but the first five verses of this psalm are a prayer. 
and a missions prayer at that. The psalmist knows that it's God's will that the nations be glad, that they sing for joy, that they praise the Lord, and he also sees that they're not doing it yet. And so he continually makes petitions to God that they would. Verses 2 and following, That your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. This psalm is a prayer. And that's the first step, isn't it? What are we going to do about missions? Well, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And the psalmist says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And so it's no good sending missionaries, supporting missionaries, trying to go and be missionaries if we're not going to pray that God will do through the missionaries what only He Himself can do. And so the first thing that we must do about all the nations and peoples where God's joy is scarcely known, where His praise is scarcely sung, the first thing that we must do is be people of prayer. And you can be very systematic about that using a book like Operation World or a website like Joshua Project that will help you to pray regularly, even daily, if you like, for the nations and peoples of the earth and the gospel needs among them. But then, you know, you can also watch the news and you can hear about France and about Syria and about Mexico or whatever country will rise to the top of the headlines next. And you can pray for the Christians there who are ministering the gospel and you can pray for the missionaries who aren't there yet, but who need to be that God will send them and you can pray for open hearts among the people of the land. And then you can also turn to a book like Operation World and learn precisely what the needs are. And turn to the Lord and say to him, Lord, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let the people of this nation that I'm seeing on the news, war-torn or hurricane-stricken or winning the World Cup or hosting the Olympics or whatever the case may be, Lord, let these people praise you. That's the first thing, really, in anything we undertake for the Lord, and certainly in missions, prayer, after the pattern of this psalm. But then as the psalmist cries out that the nations will be glad, and he makes this request about what should be, but what is not yet so, do you see at the bookends of the psalm that he has something else in mind in addition to his prayers? Look at the logic, first of all, in verses 1 and 2. Remember, This is part of the psalm that constitutes a prayer to God. But notice in the connection between verses 1 and 2 why the psalmist is praying what he's praying in verse 1. In verse 1 he prays, God, be gracious to us and bless us and cause His face to shine on us. Why? Verse 2, that your way may be known in the earth, your salvation among all nations. Did you hear it? The psalmist is asking asking God's blessing on the nation of Israel in verse 1, yes. But not so that they can live safe and comfy within their own borders. He's praying for God's blessing on them so that by means of God's blessing on them, the nations might in turn come to know their God and His salvation. Be gracious to us and bless us and cause His face to shine upon us that Your way may be known on earth, Your salvation among all nations. 
And then in verses 6 and 7, the same logic. But now the psalmist has ceased praying to God and he's begun preaching to God's people. Yes, he says, God has filled our barns, but why? The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear Him. God blesses us, says the psalmist. God causes rain to fall on our crops. He causes those crops to grow. He brings in the yearly harvest. Or in our context, God hands you your regular paycheck. Why? So that you'll be comfortable? For the purpose of missions. Isn't that what the psalm says? God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear Him. God has blessed you. God has blessed our church. He has given you and us what we need and so often more than we need monetarily so that we will use those blessings to make His name famous to the ends of the earth. And so can I urge you to remember that this Christmas season and all year round? I don't know the scale on which God has blessed you this year, but I do know one big reason why He's blessed you. So that you might give to something like Lottie Moon, or so that you might purchase some of those Arabic Bibles, or so that you might support some missionary family. And so that to whatever extent God has blessed you, you will make verse 4 your prayer, and verse 7 your plan of action. Will you do that? God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear Him. And then let me ask you before we're through, if there's anyone here this morning whom God is calling to go. Somebody maybe on a short-term trip to some place, for instance in Europe, to hand out Bibles to those Arabic-speaking refugees. Or maybe God is calling someone here today to get theological training and to go plant your life down on some foreign soil and there to live out your life sharing Christ, making disciples, planting churches. Someone has to go to France, don't they? God is going to call out someone for Syria in answer to our prayers. And maybe it's someone in this room. And if you think it's you, I'd love to hear from you and to begin to pray with you about that. But whatever the precise way, for all of us, the fact remains that God's heart beats for the nations and for His fame among them. God's heart beats that the nations would be glad in their hearts and that they would sing to Him for joy with their lips. And so our petitions ought to rise and our wallets ought to open and our hearts ought to beat and our feet and lips ought to move in rhythm with our Father's heart saying with all that we are, let the nations be glad and sing for joy.